see? No, I'm Tristan. Welcome to episode two of Carbonology, the numbers episode. We left off promising a show about numbers to put some of the bigger problems into context. Right, yes. Through this episode, we would like to get into the nuts and bolts of this big climate crisis that we're faced with. Understand these parts of the problem to put it into the bigger context of the bigger perspective. Exactly. And our strategy for doing this is to look at a few reports that have been recently published. One of the significant reports that we'll be referring to is the IPCC 2018 Global Warming Report that builds off a previous study, the AR5 Synthesis Report, which provided the scientific basis for a lot of the agreements that were made in Paris in 2015. Yes, it's quite interesting. The report mainly tries to explain or put into, again, context of what happens if the global temperature increases by 1.5 degrees Celsius. And it also draws out a comparison between the 1.5 degrees Celsius increasing global temperature and versus the 2 degrees Celsius increasing global temperature. If we were to put some of this into context, like why 1.5 degrees, why 2 degrees, the, the numbers uh, come from the IPC's work reviewing thousands and thousands of scientific papers to try and establish uh, what um, a reasonable degree of warming, accepting that warming will happen, what a reasonable degree would be. And the number of 1.5 degrees was actually a number that was just commonly agreed on by governments around the world as being a number that they were more or less satisfied with. Right. So we know that the 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in global temperature is in reference to pre-industrial times. Uh, We know that the Industrial Revolution played an immense role in the way we emit carbon today into the atmosphere and largely responsible for global warming. But what does the 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in global temperatures or the 2 degrees Celsius increase in global temperature? What does that mean? Good question. When we look at the world as a whole, there's a couple of big picture things that we need to, or we should probably understand. And if you think back to your high school science classes, you probably remember seeing a graph that uh, looked a little bit like a roller coaster where um, a line would sort of move up and move down, sort of oscillate back and forth. And that line represents uh, uh, the parts per million of carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere. The graph, sort of, if you look at it more closely, would um, show you that over time, scientists understand that the highest concentration of carbon dioxide that is typically found in the atmosphere over millions of years is around 280 to 300 parts per million. So that would be the very top of the, of the roller coaster. And at the on the bottom end, on the, on the other side of the graph, you'd see that um, the lowest dips of the roller coaster, the concentration is about 180 parts per million of carbon dioxide. And over millions of years, the planet Earth has sort of cycled back and forth from the 280 to 300 parts per million down to 180 and back up and then down and up. And today, um, uh, we have uh, um, one of those problems or one of the the ways that we understand the problem is that, that those numbers look very different. Where, where over history, we've seen a previous peak of around 300 parts per million. Today, uh, we're at 420 parts per million. 
And actually on recording of this episode, we are on the, the 8th of June. Um, just uh, yesterday on the 7th of June, a report was put out by the NOAA, the National Ocean Scientific Ad Administration, which is a scientific body here in the United States, documenting that um, the number has hit 420 parts per million, which is the highest number we've seen uh, well, between four and four and five, four and 4.5 million years. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a problem. And um, why it's a problem is because uh, we know that there's a linear relationship between carbon dioxide and temperature. So there's a second graph that accompanies the carbon dioxide concentrations graph, which is a global temperature graph. And there's a slight lag, but basically what happens with um, the increase in carbon dioxide is we see a linear increase in temperature. So um, we know that this change is going to, like this increased uh, percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is going to result in an increase in temperature. And the 1.5 degrees increase that you know global governments have accepted as being sort of an acceptable increase is uh, we know that that's coming and that's probably going it could very well be more than 1.5 degrees celsius uh, and that currently we're at one degrees um, of of global warming so we are already warmer uh, and we will only get warmer yeah uh, let's take a step back and uh, understand the greenhouse gases Right? So we know this carbon dioxide and we know the effects of that because that's what we're largely emitting into the atmosphere. But there's also methane, nitrous oxides and fluorics, right? What are the concentration of these greenhouse gases and how long do they stay in the atmosphere? So there are four big gases that, um, that contribute to global warming. Uh, carbon dioxide, which we've been talking about methane, and as you said, nitrous oxide and freon or uh, chlorofluorocarbons, which are strictly uh, man-made gases. They have various properties that uh, scientists understand and, and sort of document their harm, which is their global warming potential. And to understand global warming potential, uh, we need to understand really two things. One, which how long the gases will live or sort of uh, exist in the atmosphere. Duration in the atmosphere. The duration of them, that's right. And then um, also their ability to vibrate. And uh, that might seem like a really strange um, thing, but um, it's really important to kind of understand it in order to paint a picture for, for how these gases work as global warming gases. So if you can imagine a, a car or a small space that is enclosed by glass, could be a little greenhouse or a car or something like that. Most of us have experienced this. You sort of, you go to your car or you go to your greenhouse and you open up the door and you go inside and it is extremely hot <laughs> in there. And what's happening uh, in that space, and this happens at the scale of the planet too. And again, high school science paints a good picture of this for us, but we'll, we should talk about it quickly. What's happening is that um, sunlight is entering into that space and striking an object. If it's your car, it could be your seats or the dashboard or the steering wheel, whatever it is. And when the sunlight hits that object, it is absorbed by the object and re-released 
that energy is re-released by the object into the local environment as infrared radiation. And the difference between the sunlight and the infrared, and the infrared radiation is its wavelength. And that, that difference is actually really important because it, the infrared radiation is very good at causing things to vibrate. And um, they can be, you know, any, any can be anything. But in terms of global warming, what we're really talking about are, are the things that are in the atmosphere. And the, so we're talking about gases. And the, it turns out that different gases have the ability to vibrate in different ways. And that the composition of the gas, so the chemical composition of the gas, the geometry of how those molecules are put together, will result in sort of a different vibrating potential. And um, the, that potential is, is one of these factors, along with the lifespan of the ga gas or the duration of the gas that goes, it, goes into this sort of larger scientific measure called the global warming potential of gases. Carbon dioxide is by far the most prevalent gas um, of, the, of the four different gases that we've mentioned. And we should say that CFCs, there's a whole family of CFCs. So we'll just refer to Freon because it's the predominant one, but we could have measures for many of them. The global warming potential of carbon dioxide, because it is by far the most prevalent of these gases, is just set to the number one. If we move through the rest of the gases to understand them in order of magnitude, methane is next on the list. Methane has a global warming potential of 28. Nitrous oxide is a little bit worse. It has a global warming potential of 265. And Freon, which is from the CFC family of gases, has an outstandingly sizable global warming potential of 10,200, which is clearly a little bit more harmful than just one. I, I would like to just just quickly mention that you when we talk about CFCs and how there's a very small percentage of that in the atmosphere because of regulations and policies, it goes to show the importance of that and how it really helps navigate the way forward. You're talking about government regulation. Yes, government policies and government regulations have right. really help navigate that. So I think that's a really great example for us to kind of, and be hopeful that there is there is a space for innovation. There is some good news. There's a silver lining yeah, uh, it is in, silver in all lining, of yeah. this. Yeah, that's very true. Um, yeah, so rounding back to, uh, let's talk about the percentage of these gases in the atmosphere. So this does start to touch on um, the IPCC report. Uh, and maybe again, just sort of as an order of magnitude, we could, um, quickly touch on the parts per million or the parts per billion of these gases. You know, if, if carbon dioxide has a global warming potential of one and Freon has a global warming potential of 8,000, um, we might think that's pretty bad. But if we kind of flip that on the head, we have basically the, rev the complete reverse of, of that number scale, the global warming potential scale. Well, where Freon, if Freon is one part per billion, the parts per billion of nitrous oxide, methane, and carbon dioxide then only sort of increase. So nitrous oxide would be 350 parts per billion, methane would be almost two and a half thousand parts per billion, but then carbon dioxide would be, would be a massive 400,000 parts per billion. And you can see that 400,000 greatly outweighs in the parts per billion. So the concentration of these gases in the atmosphere greatly outweighs the global warming potential. Maybe just to be 
clear. We can publish this, these numbers so that people can actually see them and they don't have to remember everything. But it's just yeah. safe to say that carbon dioxide, just because of its sheer volume, is by far the biggest problem of the, the greenhouse gases that we've mentioned. And with respect to the IPCC report, so one of the big goals that the IPCC report had is to just say how much more carbon dioxide, given these numbers, how much more can we actually release sort of safely, you know, to, to, to limit our warming to that 1.5 degrees Celsius? And the report um, put a number on it. Uh, the, the number is 420 gigatons. 420 gigatons is, um, well, it's a difficult number for us to understand because, you know, it's, it's difficult enough to understand what a gigaton is, let alone what 420 is. But across the history of time, we believe that we have emitted, this is sort of since the Industrial Revolution, 2,400, 2,400 gigatons. If we have 420 gigatons remaining, we can see that we have less than 10%. 420 is less than 10% of 2,400. It's about 8.5% of our budget remaining. So since the Industrial Revolution through to today, we have less than 10% of our budget remaining. Can I just say one other thing? Can I circle back on it, on just a, another sort of climate issue? I just think it's an important one to bring up because again, it sort of gives us a, another measure um, for the, the impact we've had. And previously, so when we're talking about the carbon cycle and how the, this, you know, there's this um, sort of well-known sort of graph that documents the history of you know, how much carbon has been in the atmosphere. And we've sort of oscillated between 300 parts per million and 180, 180 parts per million. And we know that today we've exceeded this. We're up at 420 parts per million. One thing to understand, I think it's really useful to understand is just you know, what, what that difference represents. If we were to think of this as a piece of pie and, and sort of understand sort of the percentages, 420 parts per million is 120 parts per million over the sort of the background highest levels, which is 300 parts per million. And if you do the math on that, you know, 120 divided by 420, we're looking at a, almost 30% additional CO2 in the atmosphere today than sort of our previous, sort of the world's sort of previous sort of normal high levels. If we wanted to return the planet back to sort of this, this sort of quote unquote normal sort of historical level or high historical level, because the normal wouldn't even be 320, it'd be somewhere between 180 and 300 parts per million, somewhere in the middle of those ranges. But if we went back to that high level, previous high level, we would have to remove 30% of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And you can imagine if you had to remove 30% of anything, like that is a lot of, that is a lot of work. The no actual number is 28%, but 30% is, is a huge number. Yeah, so I mean, before we really understand the consequences of these greenhouse gases or the increase in global temperature, uh, we know a huge amount of the greenhouse gases go into the atmosphere. But there's also a good percentage of it that, or a higher percentage of it that goes into the ocean. Right, yeah. So um, where do these gases go and, and how do they affect yeah. the planet? Well, from the best of our understanding of the 
gases that we have emitted. So of the 2,400 um, gigatons, we, we believe that about 950 gigatons of CO2 have gone in, has gone into the atmosphere. That's kind of where it sits today. So it's a blanket of gas that's, that's warming the planet. And uh, the remaining uh, 1,450 gigatons, which is about 60%, so about 60% of the carbon dioxide that's been emitted has gone into the ocean. You can imagine if we had 60% more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere today than, than, um, than we currently do, we can already see that we would have you know, a significantly warmer temperature. But um, a scientist, Jennifer Bennett from uh, the NOAA, the National Ocean and Scientific Administration, has sort of refers to ocean acidification as climate change's evil twin. Yeah, so I mean, by and large, when we, when we talk about like a warmer world, right, we've, we know that means uh, increase in sea levels. We know that could result in uh, lands getting submerged, uh, it, like land being drier, so basically droughts, and that largely affects agriculture, which in turn results in people moving, migrating due to this. And so that's, I mean, if you're like just that big picture, right? That's a very, that kind of, that's what really pushes us or like makes us want to make these big changes. Yeah, so, no, one, one, I guess one way to start thinking about this is, um, you know, clearly what we're seeing is along with global warming is we're seeing the changing of of habitats. So in terms of ocean acidification, we can think of, you know, the ocean environment as, as a significant habitat. Oceans occupy 70% of the world and through sort of their absorbing of carbon dioxide, uh, scientists know that over the past 200 years, the acidity of the ocean has increased 200%. And clearly the consequences of that are you know, causing problems for marine ecosystems. Um, and we're essentially, we're seeing sort of the destabilization of that sort of really important ecosystem. And you're right, on the land side of things, we're also seeing problems that are driving migration. And essentially, you know, parts of the planet are becoming inhospitable to life. So there's a great paper that Chai Zhu uh, and several other authors participated in the paper uh, that was published by the National Academy of Science uh, in May 2020. The paper is called The Future of the Climate Human Niche. Uh, and it's a paper that sort of studies what will happen with global warming in respect to the places where people live. And the, the general thesis of the paper is, you know, people have lived in a fairly fairly stable parts of the world. And only about 1% of the world's population lives on parts of the planet that um, are so hot that it's difficult to grow food. But the paper sort of documents how this is going to change. And the, the paper estimates that, you know, from 1%, uh, we're, we expect to see a growth of, of sort of these inhospitable regions where people live to affect about 30% of the world's population, which is, I mean... Uh, I mean, I feel like we're just painting a really terrible picture for everyone, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we're talking about changes that cause sort of, you know, ocean ecosystems to collapse and, you know, 30% of the world's population to be displaced. But, you know, this is, um, this seems to be 
or this is the best estimate of, of the reality that we, we believe we're gonna face with climate change uh, as it sort of marches forward. Right, even throughout this podcast, we're quite focused on the built environment. So we know by and large that the built space is responsible for, or the building sector is responsible for nearly 40% of this problem. And we right. can further, we further understand that almost 11% of this is from, uh, is embodied carbon emissions. And then we have about 29%, uh, which are operational carbon emissions, right? So these are terms that we would have to keep in mind or we would keep using throughout these conversations because it's the basis of understanding life cycle assessments or what really drives design decisions talk while talking to an architect or in terms of manufacturing of materials so let's just take a step back let's just understand what do we mean by embodied carbon emissions and what we mean by operation carbon emissions so, Mansi, your question is a good one, uh, which is, um, what is embodied energy versus operational energy? And to put it just very simply, uh, embodied energy is the energy it takes um, to manufacture and move uh, and obtain all of the thing, all of the energy that goes into making a product and incorporating it into the fabric of a building. That measure is termed the embodied energy of a material. The embodied emission, the sort of the carbon emissions that are related to the embodied energy of a material can vary. It's an important sort of point maybe to think about because if an ener- if a material is produced, sort of if the energy used in the, the manufacturing or the harvesting or mining or whatever it is, if that energy comes from an energy source that has less carbon associated with it, the embodied emissions of that material will clearly be less. And so there's a lot of work uh, happening around the world. There have been been people who have been tracking these and and producing best estimates. But uh, you can imagine that trying to understand the entire supply chain of materials is... um, and and their movement and how they get incorporated into buildings is quite a tricky uh, process. We did talk about the carbon budget, um, the IPCC report mentions, right? But the part that we didn't talk about is the contribution of the built environment. Yeah, so the IPCC report, you know, is interesting, I guess, sort of, you know, I mean, it's a very, very long report. And one of the big takeaways, at least for me, was that, you know, they identified this 420 gigatons of carbon as being sort of the remaining budget, like how much the amount of carbon we could produce or we could release into the atmosphere before we exceed, you know, we exceed that 1.5 degrees Celsius. And and I should say that, you know, the general approach that the IPCC took in the report was that, you know, as, as scientists, nothing is certain. So they did a whole series of simulations and basically look at sort of the likelihood of something. And so the this 420 gigatons of, of carbon budget remaining was just one of the numbers that they used, but it's the main one that sort of came out of the report. And it represents a 66% chance of us reaching our, you know, of us not exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius. So we're not even certain that this 420 gigatons is actually the right number, but we know that we, we were pretty sure that 60 with 66% chance we won't exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius with that number. And 
so, you know, the question is, I guess, in, in my mind was that, well, if we know that we have 40%, if the, if the building sector or buildings and construction are responsible for about 40% of emissions, and we know that we have 420 gigatons left, well, what does that give us? Like, how, how does this affect the clock, right? That we're, we spoke about in the first episode. And so if you just take that 40% and the 420, you can actually project over time, like you can see sort of how long, um, if we reduce that 40%, how long we'll have until we consume that, the remaining carbon. And uh, if we run sort of at normal pace, so the 420 gigatons, the, the IPCC report identified this in 2018. So we have to go back a few years, it's 2021 now. So go imagine going back to 2018, we've got 420 gigatons, architecture or the built environment is consuming 40% of that. And if we divide those numbers you know, by one another, we can understand that it will expire. That carbon budget will expire in about 12 years. And that's with a fairly conservative sort of annual spend. So if we look, the, the number, when I produced the spreadsheet, the number I found, um, I think it was from the REN21 report, was 33 gigatons per year. So in 2019, it's estimated that the whole world emitted 33 gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere. And uh, so, you know, if we, if we just keep that moving forward, if every year um, we, we consume 33 gigatons, by the year 2031, we will have gone, run through that entire budget, um, which is tw about 12 years from 2018. Um, architecture is responsible for 40% of that. If, if architecture could reduce that spend, you know, down to some number, how much more clock time would that give us? Um, and so, you know, I did a whole bunch. Of building this. sector, right? Yeah, the building sector. Well, yeah, the building sector, architect. Yeah, so you're right. I would say architecture, but the building sector. Um, if, we were, if we drop that number, so from 40% down to 0%, if we could, if we could tomorrow, or actually back in 2019, if back, or 2018, if we could have in 2018 dropped that 40% down to 0%, we could, the, the building sector could extend the clock from 2031 to 2039. So we could in, in essence give another 10 years of, of time to the carb, you know, to, to solving the the problem, the world's problem, carbon problem, um, which is interesting. Um, it's a little, it's also sort of, a, I find a slightly depressing number because, you know, if we, if we could do everything in the world to change the building sector, we would still only result in sort of 10 years of additional time. Um, 10 years is valuable and it, it would be very valuable for, um, for the renewables sector to have an additional 10 years. Um, but, but, I think also what this says is really that this is a problem that even though we play a major role in, and we have certainly 
a big responsibility to reduce our emissions, we do have to work together with other industries in order to really solve this problem. I think that, you know, however uh, daunting these numbers are, I think through the process of actually researching for this episode and then kind of in turn learning about the positives that are happening and that it does make a significant change makes me hopeful and makes me feel like we're what we're doing is the right thing and that our actions do have consequences and that it could be positive. And as we progress with the podcast, learn what people are doing and how it's making a larger impact. Yeah, so stay tuned. Next episode, good news.